When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. this episode of the show we've got grouse and woodcock hunting question and answer with a loyal listener of the show brady martin thanks for tuning in to episode number 193 welcome back to another episode of the birdshot podcast everybody thank you for tuning in thank you for joining us we've got a great show for you today a little grouse and woodcock question and answer with myself and a listener of the show brady martin it's october everybody just let that sink in we're gonna get to brady in a bit but first of course thank you to patreon patrons of the birdshot podcast i appreciate you and i thank you for your continued support of the show and we've got a giveaway winner to announce tim from minnesota winner of our september monthly giveaway He's got his choice of the Sawbuck brush pants from First Light or the Onyx Elite subscription card. Waiting to hear back from Tim on that, but I will update all of you next week and let you know what we have for October. So anybody out there listening, if you want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, which I do appreciate, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Starts at five bucks a month. We'll get you some canned coolers and stickers as a little welcome gift. You're interested in those monthly giveaways. You get access to bonus content. Just recorded another bonus episode with Nick Adair of the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast last night. That'll be out soon for Patreon patrons. And you get exclusive discounts on products like Gumleaf USA, Gumleaf Boots, Upland Institute, video training series from Justin McGrail, Ron Bain, and anything else I can come up with for you in the future. So as always, thanks for considering that. And don't forget, anybody out there listening, and always 
help out the Bird Shop Podcast by leaving a rating, leaving a review, subscribing to the show, following the podcast, whatever you can do in the podcast app that you're listening on, share an episode. If you're driving in the truck, headed to bird camp, listening to the show, feel free to share that on your Instagram story or somewhere when you're parked, when you're stopped. Be smart about that. But I love seeing those. It's one of my favorite things to do if I'm headed to the cabin or bird camp somewhere. You can bet I'm listening to a hunting podcast and getting jacked up for the days ahead. So little things, always helpful to the Bird Shop Podcast. Again, thank you for considering that as well. All right, keep sending in those questions for Justin McGrail, hunting-related bird dog questions. If you're not familiar who Justin McGrail is, he's a dog trainer, has done a lot of upland bird guiding over the years. He and Ron Bame collaborated on the Upland Institute video series. Great video series for training your bird dogs. Check that out at uplandinstitute.com. Justin's straightforward approach and ability to break down concepts into understandable and bite-sized chunks has always appealed to me and a lot of other people. Learn something every time you hear him talk about bird dogs and bird hunting. Check out the Q&A podcast he's done over on the hunting dog podcast with ron bain and send me your questions to nick at birdshotpodcast.com for an upcoming q a with justin when we have enough questions and can work that into the calendar okay i think that's all i got i am recording this on wednesday october 5th tomorrow morning i'm heading out to pine ridge grouse camp for three days gonna be there doing some hunting and guiding some of you might remember we gave away a hunt on the Bird Chat Podcast at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp last year, I believe. Well, the winner is headed up to Pine Ridge this weekend, so I'm going to head out there, meet up with him. We're going to do some hunting, and we're going to spend some time in the woods, which are on fire at the moment with respect to the leaf color, that is. It's been warm. The woods have been thick, heavy cover. I talked about it last week, I think, but... The woods are changing by the day right now. Lots more color. The temps are going to drop off tomorrow. We're going to get some more frost. Things are going to happen quickly now. And I'm getting very excited for the weeks and months ahead. So we're on the verge of prime time at this point. I hope you're out hunting and chasing birds this weekend. And with that in mind, we're going to segue into our conversation today with Brady Martin, a listener of the show. I met him at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp over the summer, he came up to do a gun fitting with Del Whitman for an Upland Gun Company shotgun. He's got in the works, and Brady and I had been chatting back and forth a bit over the past couple weeks. He is getting into grouse hunting more seriously now with his first bird dog. Had some questions he ran by me. He sent me a whole list of them, which were really good questions, I will say. For somebody in the early stages of their grouse hunting journey, Brady is thinking about things and asking questions that it took me a long time to even get there to the point of comprehension and asking these questions. So tip of the cap to Brady for thinking about these things and being curious in that way. And as I get a lot of questions like Brady's this time of year, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to just sort of take advantage of helping him out and sharing some thoughts with him. Figured we would record it, make it available here. We have a little question and answer session on grouse and woodcock hunting for this week's episode. I say it a few times in the show, would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on this episode. By no means 
do I believe what you will hear on today's show is gospel or the cold hard facts about grouse hunting. A lot of what I'm sharing are my thoughts and perspectives that I have developed over the past 27 years or so. Both Brady and I share a little bit about our background to give some context to the conversation today. But again, there are countless ways to think about and analyze a lot of these questions and topics. And I am always interested in constructive conversation and different perspectives on how to go about finding and hunting ruffed grouse and woodcock. So you know how to reach me. I hope you enjoy the conversation and find some value in here. And again, thank you to Brady for putting these questions together and inspiring a really fun conversation on grouse and woodcock hunting. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, Brady Martin. You know, I hunted grouse maybe once when I was a kid, 35 years ago. Yep. And then I hunted pheasants and ducks with my dad for years. We made some trips up to Canada doing that for waterfowl and geese. And we hunted, I think we hunted prairie chickens and sharp tails up there a little bit. Maybe some from hunt, some huns, Hungarian partridge. I, you know, they, they the guide that we would use would call... He had a different name for everything. Yeah, like like sharp sharp tails were called chickens. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's hard to keep track of actually. So you what don't know what you were we hunting. <laughs> no, he would just say, "Hey, go walk that." And then he had different line, you know, different names for all the covers too. Go walk that coolie, or yeah, he'd have us go walk these windbreaks, and you know, inevitably there'd be birds in there. But I didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And then I met my wife and got into deer hunting, and kind of jumped in with that and just recently have kind of gotten away from the deer hunting. I got tired of trying to find the biggest deer every year and it just, it got to be more of a task and less enjoyable. Um, my family wanted a dog, so we got a, a poodle pointer and she's 14 months old. And that's my big thing for this year is just try and expose her to as many wild birds as I possibly can. Yeah. So that's why all the questions about, about grouse hunting love it well with that brady i think we'll just we'll worry about the photo later and we will just say that we are off and running here on the birdshot podcast so i definitely appreciate you joining me and i appreciate that background what what led you into the poodle pointer uh so i (laughs) my law enforcement background i I was a canine handler for years i had a big german shepherd and you know he went I mean, I literally spent more time with him than I did my family. We yeah. were 12-hour shifts. He rode around with me the entire shift. And I don't remember, a handful of years ago, I had to put him down some health issues. And my daughters are 12 and, and 9, and they really wanted a dog. And I said, well, if we're going to get a dog, we're going to get a dog that has some utility that I can hunt with. And I quite literally Googled what kind of dog should I get. <laughs> it, it generates these, uh, I don't know, some kind of algorithm. It asks you a bunch of questions and how big a dog and can it shed. Oh, so there was, there's like a legit website that you wound up on that you're answering questions then. Well, legit is a, I don't know if it was legit or not. Yeah, surface level questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it said poodle pointer and it was based on temperament and uh, 
a lot of different things. So I yeah. actually have a coworker and you know, I told him I was going to get a dog and I said, the, uh, Google spit out that I should get a poodle pointer. And he said, I have two. So I got in touch with his breeder and I think he kind of moved me up to the top of the list. I don't know for whatever reason, based on my occupation or whatever that was, but moving to the top of the list. And all of a sudden I had a dog before I was really ready to have a dog. I think, um, <laughs> I might've, I might've put it off another year or so, but so far so good. Um, so yeah, the, the, I didn't have a, an idea going into it that I wanted a poodle pointer, but I think it's, it's worked out pretty well for us. Yeah. That's great to hear. You guys have been, you've been busy over the last year and I know you and I caught up at Pine Ridge over the summer, you were there doing a gun fitting with Dell, and we were very eagerly looking ahead to hunting season at that time because that was August. So now you're off and running. You've spent a few weekends in in the grouse woods. What are your what's your initial thoughts? And I know you got questions. We're going to get to those today. But what are your initial thoughts and 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 some things you've taken note of uh, first few weekends of grouse hunting here in 2022? You know, I guess if my hunting experience is was mostly whitetails in southeastern Minnesota and southwest Wisconsin. And there, you know, you've got woods and ag mixed. Mm-hmm. And you essentially, if you can identify where the the thicker cover is, the bucks generally in the evening are going to move from that cover out to the ag. And, you know, in the mornings, they're going to be coming from the ag and moving back to that cover to bed down. And... You know, if you can figure that out, you can generally, I mean, that's dumbing it way down. You can generally figure out where the deer are going to be moving. Well, you know, you go to grouse hunting and you've got 50,000 acres of public land. And, you know, that was when I started doing some Onyx e-scouting, trying to determine, okay, where are they going to be? Where are they going to move to? And then I got out there and went this is way more ground than, than I can narrow down like I could with, with deer hunting. So that was, that's been a challenge. That being said, I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. You know, sitting in a tree waiting for a deer to hopefully walk by versus wandering around with a dog and you can have a conversation with the people that you're with. And I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it, but yeah, you know, it, it would be nice to be able to figure it out. I really, I'm at the point in my hunting life where bag limits and filling tags is kind of beside the point. I'd like, I enjoy the adventure of it. I enjoy being out there and I I just want to see the dog get on birds and, and see her work. That's my, that's really my goal. I mean, I, I said to my wife, if I don't shoot a bird all year, I'm fine with it as long as the dog gets good work. Yeah. gets good experience out of it. Well, based on the questions you sent me and, and you are a detective. So, so I guess you got, some, you got some background there, but you, uh, you sent some great questions and, and I, and I say that to, to highlight the fact that you're, you've got the right expectations. I mean, you've got, you're going into it with, with, you know, you're not expecting too much. And so, you, you know, better, uh, 
easier to easier to please yourself if you got those expectations but you're trying to understand and you're you're thinking about all the right things you're asking lots of questions in your head and we'll talk about them here on the podcast so i mean from the from the outside looking in brady i would say you're off to a heck of a start and you're going to you're going to have a great season just based on your expectations and and what you're trying to do this fall so that's cool yeah and i guess why i have to temper my expectations a little bit you know you talk to to jerry up at pine ridge and his guides are sitting there and they're talking about 30 40 50 flushes and i'm shaking my head going i i think i heard one uh <laughs> and i and i have to realize too that these are professionals who have done it for quite literally decades and have yeah. teams of dogs there are a reason they're guides at a premier grouse camp i gotta remember that i'm new to this i'm i've got a new dog you know, I'm one dog, one dude walking through the woods trying to figure it out. So I have to yeah. keep that in perspective as well. I yeah, I think I think that's that's great advice for anyone. Is you know, a lot of times with hunting and you know, throw fishing in there, just the, the sitting around the tailgate and throwing numbers out, and it's it's kind of what we do as hunters, and it's one way that we communicate. But there's it, in my mind, it's it's kind of always apples to oranges unless you really know that person and what they're doing. Like you're saying, you know, if a guy's got five, six dogs and he can, he can hunt a fresh dog all day long in theory, you know, he's going to probably be able to put up more birds than you, unless you have a a really, really lucky or fortunate day. So keeping that kind of stuff in perspective, I also think will go a long way in, in what you get out of this season. So again, that's, it's really cool to see just based on where you're at with your dog and what you're doing this fall. Yeah. So you sent me a bunch of questions. We're going to go over those and you've kind of shared like this is this is your first real season with your first bird dog getting after rough grouse and you're you're digging deeper looking for a looking to understand the fundamentals and the basic concepts. And I'm on the other end of the, you know, the microphone here and the listeners will will know my experience a little bit. I'll just share like I don't I don't consider myself an expert. I mean, I'm, I'm always curious and I'm always trying to learn stuff. And I, and anybody that's been listening to the show for a long time will know that, um, that's really what we try to do with the guests on this show. But on today's show, we're going to, we're going to go through these questions that Brady has. I will share my best sort of perspective and educated guesses on some of this stuff. And I'll just kind of share my thoughts and then, and we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper. If you've got questions or thoughts or things come up, we're just going to kind of go back and forth talking about grouse and woodcock hunting. And I did want to just share for, for anybody that hasn't been listening for a long time or wants to know a little bit more about my background. I, I could honestly say that I've been hunting grouse since I was about 10 years old and that was 27 years ago. So do the math there if you want. Obviously, when you get first get started, you're 10 years old. I'm not going hunting every weekend. And, you know, the hunter effort is is not what it is today. But once I got my driver's license at 16, I was I was grouse hunting was kind of my number one thing in the fall. I was I was going probably reasonably 20 to 40 days a year for the next, um, I don't know, 15 years or so before I got my first bird dog in 2014. And not a couple of years after that, the podcast started and, and folks will kind of know more of my recent history. And, and the past few years, I've been fortunate to be able to hunt quite a bit more like 50, 60 days in the grouse woods every year. And I would, I would definitely say I've learned probably more in the last five years 
with my dogs and doing this podcast and having these conversations, I probably learned more in the last five years than I did in the previous 22 or whatever. So that's, uh, that's just a little, little bit additional background on me in case anybody's wondering, but with that context set, let's jump into this stuff. Brady, I think I will read, I think I'll read the questions and you can add sort of any clarification or thoughts you have, and then we'll just kind of go back and forth and we'll see where it takes us. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So your first one is how do you narrow down where to hunt after e-scouting? What percentage of spots you've e-scouted do you simply drive past without stopping? So good questions there. Any examples come to mind that kind of made you ask that question? Well, you know, I, I watched uh, the Onyx e-scouting seminars. Yeah, with Jerry and Ben. Yeah, with Jerry and Ben. And that's that's kind of where that question came from is, you know, they're, they're looking at covers and they're talking about, you know, this looks like tighter groupings of aspens you know you can see here these trees are planted in rows so they're probably pines and so what i did is i just i did like they suggested i went on on x and just started dropping waypoints at stuff that looked good and oftentimes i'd pull up and go no this you know looks different than it did on on x or um you know you're just trying to optimize your time out there i don't want to if I can identify a cover as being less than productive or not as good as another might be, I'd prefer to just drive on down the road for, for, you know, just optimize that time that I have in the woods. Um, But you don't, at the same time, you don't want to discount something by just simply looking out the window and going, ah, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I guess how do you, if you look at a cover, you posted something on Instagram about a week or so ago where it was, I think, some more mature aspens with, with hazel brush underneath. underneath. Yep. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll look for that sort of yeah. uh, situation. <laughs> and and hunting in Minnesota, as Ann always likes to joke, you, you won't. You won't have a problem finding that. We have a lot of that. It was the picture, the thing I posted on Instagram was, I bet you that was, this is just a guess, but 15-year-old Aspen. I mean, it was it was 20, 25-foot-tall Aspen, and there was just a perfect hazel brush understory. So Aspen overstory, hazel brush understory. And when I see that, I'm, that's a little older Aspen. It's not, it wasn't 10-year-old Aspen. It wasn't broomstick Aspen. It was a little bit bigger, older, and had that hazel brush understory. That was that was grouse cover to my eyes, and that's that's why I posted that. With respect to your question, I would say this is where this is really the intersection of where e scouting meets that age old saying that people like to say boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. There, one is not a replacement for the other; they work in tandem. And there's so many factors that come into play as far as what spots you can go and hunt on a weekend. And it usually the the limiting factor is time, right? Like we can't be in the woods every day and we we're always, I feel like we're, I'm always making decisions based on how much dog power do I have today? How much time do I have to run? Where can I get to? Where can I go? And you're always going to be weighing those different factors when you're out in the woods. The beauty of e-scouting and the way I see it, it's, it's sort of this, you can, there's no limit to how many waypoints you can drop. Well, there might be a limit. We could 
we could, if we had Ben on here, we could ask him, but I think, (laughs) I think if we hit our waypoint limit, we, uh, we can start a new Onyx account or something. But anyways, you can drop a hundred waypoints and they're points of interest, right? You've identified something, whether it's an actual timber cut that's noted in Onyx, uh, or it's a it's a swamp edge or some other feature that you've seen drop the waypoint you know you want to have that stuff and they talked about this in that webinar is have a way to classify your waypoints whether it's a color I like doing a certain color if it's something that I see from the computer but I haven't put eyes on it physically I make it a certain color so I know that when I'm in the field but all all what I'm trying to do is so that I'm not out in the woods with limited service in a bad area with the clock ticking away, scratching my head, wondering where to go. That's going to happen inevitably because we're always going to be weighing this stuff, but you want to have ideas and spots to go look at. So that's kind of how I view e-scouting. It's like you always want to have a, a good supply of places that you could go check out. Now, when it comes to actually, say, driving up to the spot, what would I be looking at that would make me keep driving? Well, that's going to depend on how the cover is set up. And to give an example there, it would be if I'm looking at a timber cut that is, say, 10 years old or something, if I can see that cut from the road, that might influence something where if I pull up and it's spotty aspen regeneration, very sparse stem density, which would in theory lead to lots of grasses and weeds. I might pull up to that spot and say, yeah, this is a 10 year old Aspen cut on paper, but it does not look like the kind of place I want to go cut the dogs loose. Right now, the, the other thing would be another, another example would be if that Aspen cut is 300 yards back in the woods and I can't see it from the road. I'm prop if I drove there and I got there and it's 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 a hunt day I'm probably I'm probably putting the dog down and I'm going to look at it right I want to see I want to see the objective that I pinned or marked at the spot but the only thing that would that would get me to to turn away from the road would be you get there and you just see something you don't like and and that's going to that's going to it's going to come with experience you're going to have to have time in the woods to to know if you see something you don't like. Um, but for the most part, I think like one of the comments you made earlier about 50,000 acres, it's all forest. I sometimes I like to say it's, it's all grouse cover. I mean, if you're in the forested regions of the States that we're hunting, most of it is grouse cover. We're obviously looking for, for concentrations of birds and concentrations of good cover. But I try to, I try to keep an open mind when it comes to rough grouse cover because they're they're native birds they will use almost all of it at various points so don't be afraid to go for a walk and check something out you'll probably learn something on that walk even if it's just that oh that's a poorly regenerating aspen cut i'm not coming back here for a while right mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah yep anything else on the the follow-up question what percentage of spots you've scouted do you simply drive past I, I don't even, I, I haven't even thought about it that much. I don't really know if like there's a, there's a percentage, but again, going back to what I said right away, there's always, I've always got more, more spots e-scouted than I've put boots on the ground. in. you know, you always want okay. to have that, that sort of next thing to check out basically. Okay. The next question was when you arrive, what makes you get out and hunt or move on? And that goes back to, that just goes back to just 
like kind of my sense of adventure. And that's something you talked about too. Like, I just want to go see whatever it was that, that caught my attention via the satellite imagery or the map. I want to go, I want to go take a look at it and I, I can reasonably assume, you know, there's no guarantees you're going to find a birds, but I, there's a chance we could find a bird in about any of these places. Really. If you're in, if you're in the rough grouse and woodcock range. Okay. All right. Next one is, I've heard you and Ann talk about sand versus clay. Should this factor in if I stop in a spot I've e-scouted? So give me a little more detail there. How would it factor in? What are you thinking about with respect to that question? Well, again, I'm just trying to maximize the time that I have. Say you pull up at a cover and it's it's borderline. It's It's maybe... It's just one of those that you're kind of iffy about, oh, there might be grouse. I don't know if the concentration is going to be what I want it to be. And you look down and you see, oh, it's sand. Ah, you yep. know what? That just pushed me the other direction. I'm going to I'm gonna go check out the next cover down the road. Um, or you, you get out and you think, oh, it's it's clay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around and at least give this 15 minutes, a half hour, see, if, see what it looks like when I get further in. Um, yeah, does yeah. it factor in that way or, or is it just another, as you're going for that walk or, you know, as you're, you're working that cover, you go, I only had two flushes here and you, you kind of make note of the fact that it was sand and, and not clay or mm-hmm. I guess that's, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely understand your angle there more so than I did when I first read it. I I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way, but I think if I'm being honest, I would have to say that I probably, the sand country stuff has, it's got a a tougher road to hoe when it comes to me, me looking at it and identifying. Like if I see something that looks marginal and it's sand country, I probably would be more likely to let my foot off the brake and keep driving it versus if it were clay. And that's based on a lot of personal history and experience hunting heavy clay soil. It's still, in my mind's eye, has it's just got the it's got the mix and what I'm looking for. And again, this is going back over years and years of experience and where I found birds. A lot of it is like a mental confidence thing for me, and I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of push the envelope in the sand country a little bit, but. I would probably say that, yeah, if it were clay, I'm going to give it more. The, I'm going to give clay soil more benefit of the doubt than I would sand country. Whether that's right, wrong, indifferent, I'm just I'm just sort of commenting on my personal experience there with hunting sand and clay, which we've we've talked about extensively. But is a it's one of the, it's a really interesting conversation I think when it comes to rough grouse and woodcock hunting because the differences can be quite noticeable. And is that exclusive to grouse or is it grouse and woodcock? I mean, you just alluded to it there, but I mean, it, I would say, I would say exclusive to grouse because the, I have not had the same challenges hunting the sand when it comes to woodcock. I feel like it's, it's much easier to find good numbers of woodcock in sand country than it is grouse. So I would, I would say, yeah, if you're, if you're looking for woodcock for a young dog or whatever you're doing, I would, I would not be so skeptical of sand country covers as I, as I might be if I was looking for grouse. Okay. 
And in fact, the sand country tends to have a lot of really, really nice stem density aspen cuts that can can really be loaded with woodcock. So um, if you're if you're looking for woodcock, I wouldn't hesitate to go to the sand country. But you want to be careful of that that sandy soil stuff. It will dry out quicker. So I think it's a little bit different when the when the woodcock are migrating and flying. They don't seem to be as picky, and they kind of they kind of fill up covers all over the place. They obviously want to be somewhere they can feed, and if it's if it's high ground and bone dry, probably less likely than a place that is a little bit lower and closer to a swamp. But um, I've found really good numbers of woodcock in in sand sand country covers. And when sense. they're they're migrating, is that strictly due to weather conditions further north, or is there a time? You know, again, northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, Great right. Lakes states. Are they? Is there typical? You know, about mid-October is when they're going to be moving through, give or take a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I definitely would not would not claim. You know, I'm just very much an observer when it comes to the woodcock migration, as most of us are. But I think it's it's going to kind of be it's one of those all of the above things when it comes to animal migrations. I mean, it's somewhat time of the year. I don't know if it has anything to do with with daylight, but I do I do you hear that when it gets really cold up north and the ground starts to freeze, obviously the woodcock need to probe the ground for earthworms. So that's going to be something that very logically would would move birds south. And you also hear a lot that they do they will wait for kind of a tailwind. So if you get a north wind, you get a north wind blowing overnight and then you go out and hunt the next day, I feel like I have had that happen where there's been cold weather, north wind, go out the next day and we're loaded up with woodcock. Like they ride that wind down. So they they seem to be somewhat opportunistic in when they travel, but it's it's a it's a multitude of factors you know, with respect to temperature, wind conditions, you know, I, if there was a strong South wind, I don't think they're going to get up and get up and fly South if they don't have to. Okay. But again, that's just, that's kind of uh that's my thoughts on it. I feel like that's, that's fairly well rooted, but you know, I didn't say this, but as Brady and I are having this conversation, I'm obviously sharing some thoughts and perspective as is Brady. This episode in particular definitely encourage folks to, write in, send me an email, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Would love to hear other people's thoughts. You know, I don't I don't think we're gonna get everything right here or have all the answers. So as much as we can facilitate some additional conversation and thoughts and stuff around this, uh just encourage folks to write in. So uh anything else on that one, Brady? No. Nope. I think okay. that helps. All right. So this is something that we chatted about briefly. Why is the early season harder do the leaves make it more difficult or are the birds scattered more due to the availability of food or both? Anything else on that before I jump in? No, I think that that's, I think that sums it up. I, I heard some other conversations regarding berries and things like that in the woods are still up until you get a, a pretty decent freeze, which potentially gives more you know, more food sources available. So I, I just yep. was kind of curious. Yeah. I think your, your tail question there or both, it's, it's one of those, all of the above. And, and it also is like harder in what way? I mean, one thing, the shooting is harder. We can't, we can't, we can barely see five feet in the woods right now. 
and the cover is the cover is really thick this year and it's it's a really late leaf turn and drop and we're just starting to see a lot of colors in the woods right now it's it's october 4th today when we're recording this and i think we're on the verge of of that primetime grouse hunting but it's it's been pretty late this year so it's definitely hard it's hard on the shooter i also think it's hard on the dogs i think with all that cover up I don't think the scent travels as well. I think it's it's very likely, it's more likely that the dogs are going to run into birds and bump into birds simply because you've got all kinds of heavy grasses and weeds and just so many things working against the hunter and dog. So that just flat out makes early season grouse hunting harder. Now, with respect to like bird distribution and food, I mean, the food is a big one because as you're suggesting, there basically is food everywhere. Grouse are, they're going to eat insects, they're going to eat berries, they're going to eat lots of green leaves, salad. And one thing there's no shortage of is our green leaves right now, whether it's clover, aspen leaves, wild strawberry, all of the things, all of the green stuff that grouse are eating, you can basically find it anywhere. So as the season progresses, we get some frost and we get some cooler temps, the food sources start to drop off and fall away. So you lose, you lose some greens and grasses. And I think like the berries are, are pretty early to go. Those are, those are going to become pretty palatable at this point after a couple of frosts and they will, they will get eaten up quickly, not just by grouse, but all kinds of other birds and animals. And actually a good example from last weekend I was hunting and I was hunting an area that is not known for its thorn apple or hawthorn, hawthorn trees. They got little apples on them, a very well-known grouse food, although I don't see a ton of it in this part of the world. Well, this year in particular, I think we had pretty favorable conditions for fruit bearing trees, lots of apples and berries and all kinds of stuff out in the woods. And so I found some patches of hawthorn trees that had more apples than I'd ever seen in this in this part of the rough grouse country that I hunt and sure enough I found one cover that had like an above average amount of thorn apples compared to the surrounding area and there was a lot of grouse in there I had a really good hunt in there on Sunday morning I think in an hour and 15 minutes I I flushed 10 grouse and it was kind of, it was getting warm and we, we could have kept hunting. There was more cover to hunt, but I just, I had a, had a couple birds and we pulled out and left. But when I got that, when I got that bird home, actually two birds out of that cover, I got them home. One of them was totally full of thorn apples. The other one was full of aspid leaves. So no shortage of food, but if you can find something like that, so you so if you can, if there's thorn apples everywhere, that doesn't necessarily help you, right? That's kind of where I was going with this. But if you can find a food source that is unusually in abundance in a particular cover versus that region as a whole, sometimes that can bode well. And you can find concentrations of birds around that specific food source. But again, I think this time of year, it's pretty tough just because there are there's so much food. The other thing I wanted to say there when it comes to bird distribution a lot of times what we find in the early season is that birds are still grouped up in their family broods and you've got you can have groups of five six seven eight birds i feel like that tends to lend itself towards a 
sometimes a boom or bust feeling in the woods. You know, you might be, might be walking for an hour and not flush anything, but then all of a sudden you flush six grouse right together. And that can be fun. That can be exciting, but it can also, it can feel challenging because you're the activity that you're having is limited to these really small windows. And then you've got lots of periods of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. What, what happens as the season plays out is actually that those birds tend to distribute that's called the fall shuffle or the scatter. The males are young males are going off to find their own territory. All of the birds are kind of spreading out and becoming more evenly distributed around the forest and the grouse covers that you're hunting. And I think that leads to you get a lot more one and two bird flushes and you get them more frequently. And that's kind of what's happening in October in what people call primetime rough grouse hunting. And I think that it increases your your experience in the woods that day because the activity, while you're not flushing six, seven, eight birds at once, you're flushing more ones, twos, and you're doing it more frequently. And that, that leads to a, that leads to a more exciting day. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm after. That's what I'm, that's the kind of hunting that I want to have is, you know, give me, give me a single bird or two birds and a bunch of points by the dog throughout the day versus the boomer bust of the early season. Does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. All right. Moving on. Okay, so should I assume woodcock will be mixed in with the grouse or look for different cover? So I would say this depends on what your what your goals are. If you want to find woodcock, like we talked about earlier, for a young dog, I'm probably going to do things a little bit differently than I normally normally would. My sort of default mode when I'm in the woods is I am grouse hunting with the assumption that I will encounter enough woodcock to enjoy and be happy about. I'm not actively looking for woodcock. And, and that's, that comes from when I do that, when I focus on rough grouse and try to find rough grouse, I feel like I get enough woodcock activity. There's enough overlap there in the covers that I'm hunting that I don't feel like I need to go look for woodcock which is one of the that's one of the beauties of rough grouse and woodcock hunting around here is that you get that really cool mixed bag hunt overlapping stuff there are things you can do to focus in more on grouse and more on woodcock and so you kind of have to find that find that balance yourself what you're looking for and if you're just looking for woodcock probably going to focus on some of those young aspen cuts that we talk about so often and and I wouldn't be afraid to walk right through the middle of them and look for woodcock in there they'll be in there or alders if you can be close to alders and the, and the alders is a good one because if you if you are on a low edge with alders and there's an aspen cut nearby that's one of those spots where you're very likely to find grouse and woodcock so okay. you kind of you kind of can come up with your own little mix there of of sort of what you want to encounter. And, you know, if I get into a spot and there's, you know, I, I put up 10 woodcock right away. Um, I might, I might sort of alter my course or try to get out of that cut or wherever those woodcock are holding up. I might try to get on the fringes of that, get on the edge of something to maybe get a few less points. Cause you know, if you get a, get an experienced dog in a, in a cover full of woodcock, you can be 
walking from point to point to point, which can be fun. But if you're, if you're trying to find rough grouse that day, sometimes they can, those woodcock can slow you down a little bit. Okay. All right. Do woodcock make a chirping sort of sound when they flush? Yes. I, I refer to it as sort of like a twittering sound. And I, you know, I don't know if it's there. I always kind of just, uh, associate it with the woodcock wings getting up. I don't know that it's the wings making the sound. If we had a woodcock biologist on here or a wildlife biologist on here, they could easily correct me. I don't know if that's the, if it's a vocalization or if it's the wing sound, but yeah, the woodcock me. And it's part of the, if you ever go and watch the sky dance in the spring, you'll hear that as well. You hear a lot of sounds that the woodcock make as they're rising up and the males are dancing in the sky and then they come back down. Um, yes, they do make a, they do make a noise when they get up. Did you, were you hearing something, but not seeing it? What led to that question? Yeah, this, this past Saturday, we had certainly more success than the previous where the, I found that I was getting into some alders, which were on the, the edge of a swamp and dog was pointing some and i would hear what sounded like a smaller bird flushing just from the wing beat and it, they're making a you know i'm, I'm certainly not going to attempt to make the sound on a podcast but <laughs> yeah, they yeah, were yeah. they were making a either whatever it was the wing beat or the vocalization had a had a sound to it that was different i thought than the grouse and i was just trying to make sure that yeah those because and we spoke about this earlier it's so thick i you know, I could see a bird flushing, but I certainly yes. couldn't identify what it was. And I'm, you know, just for my own knowledge, wanting to know, is that a, a woodcock that I was likely hearing? Because then we'd, we'd go a little bit further and we'd be in a, you know, this cover was only about a hundred yards wide, but we'd get into the, the thicker part of it that, you know, the elevation change was maybe only 10 feet but the, the cover was definitely different and I, we were flushing grouse and I could definitely hear a difference between the two. Yeah. Um, it's just yeah. trying to differentiate what I was hearing. Cause I just many, I couldn't, I couldn't see. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And yeah, I, based on what you're describing, I suspect you were hearing woodcock when you hear that, that little twittering or chirping sound as they're flushing. It's a, they're a smaller bird, they don't flush with the same vigor and intensity of a grouse. So that grouse is going to be that real thundering, booming flush, um, which again, the sound is different in the early season with the foliage up. A lot of times you don't, it's, you, you still, I don't have too many issues here differentiating between a woodcock and a grouse. And I suspect you'll, you'll get there very quickly. You'll know that now that you kind of confirm what a woodcock sounds like, but the sound is a little bit tricky in the early season. You just never, never quite know, depending on how bird, how far the bird is away from you and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, grouse is more of that real thundering, powerful flush and the woodcock, um, they can have that kind of like sort of light fluttering, twittering kind of flush sound. So I suspect you were flushing woodcock there. Okay. All right. What is hazel brush? And then the next question is what is a hazel catkin? So hazel brush something I talk about all the time. It's kind of a slang term. I think it's, it's, it's called hazel. I I looked it up here on Wikipedia, um, hazel or hazelnut. You'll hear American hazelnut. That's, that's pretty much what we're talking about. It's a shrubby, 
it's a shrub like bush in the forest and it's synonymous with grouse cover to me. It's, it's very likely in the covers that I'm hunting all the time. And that is because hazelnut is abundant. It's an abundant shrub layer in the forest, in the areas that I tend to hunt. That is not the same everywhere. And Ann Jandernaw points that out about every year when we have her on that it's not as common where in some of the areas that she hunts in Wisconsin and maybe even less common in Michigan. I haven't spent a lot of time hunting in Michigan over the years, so I can't comment on that specifically, but I can tell you that we have a lot of hazel brush in Minnesota and I, I, it's in a lot of the covers that I hunt in Wisconsin too. So it's a very nice shrub layer in the forest that also has hazel catkins. So the hazelnut tree grows these nuts that are there in the summer. Those are typically gone. I think by the time the season opens up, maybe there's some out there. I don't know that grouse eat those. I suspect they, they very well might. They're actually the hazelnuts are kind of, they're sort of encased in this, like, um, it's not a hard shell, but it's like a, it's like kind of a spiky thorny vegetation layer around the hazelnut. But if you, if you open that up, you'll find inside a hazelnut. Okay. What it provides is it's twofold, really. It provides really good stem density in a lot of areas, especially we're talking about that, that cover that I mentioned earlier, where I've got 25 foot tall aspen. Those aspen are, they're aging. They're starting to thin out. They're not as dense themselves. If you've got a good hazel brush understory layer underneath, that's providing additional stem density, additional protection from avian predators, going to make it easier for the grouse to hide in there. And, and the hazel brush can really, I mean, it can be, it can be sparse or it can be really, really solid and thick. I mean, you can run into walls of hazel, hazel brush. That was something Ann mentioned on our, on our episode this year that she, she gets into a, a wall of hazel brush and she can't, can't see over the top of it. It can be very, very thick. And I like that because early season, it can be tough when the hazel brush has the leaves on, it makes shooting more difficult, but hazel brush, that stuff's probably all yellow at this point or, or a lot of it. And the hazel brush tends to drop its leaves pretty early. And when that happens, the hunting conditions can really improve, but the hazel brush itself is still providing stem density and cover for the birds. And when those early season food sources that we talked about earlier, when those start to dissipate and fade away at some point, usually in October, the grouse will start keying in on the hazel catkins and the hazel catkins. I could send you a picture of them. I'll probably take some notes and and try to add some of the stuff to the show notes. It's uh, they can vary in length, but usually I'm picturing something about maybe the length of like the width of a dime across, not very, not very long. It's a little kind of cone like, or almost like it looks like a little tiny pine cone without the petals flaring out. It's more of a solid piece, but once you see it and it should be on, if you can identify hazel brush in the field, you should see catkins on there. Some trees have more catkins than others, but you can, it's usually a pretty easy thing to find Okay. in the woods. And if you kill a grouse in mid to late October and open it up, it's very likely you're going to find hazel catkins in its crop, at least from my experience. And sometimes you will, you will open up crop that could be like the size of a, 
you know, a, a darn near a baseball full of hazel catkins. They will, when they transition onto those hazel catkins, they go at them pretty good. And so it's a, it's a good thing to pay attention to because they like the cover. They will use it as protection, but it also becomes a food source at some point during the season. And when you've got cover and food, that's, you know, those are two critical components. That's something you want to be paying attention to. So, and this is something man always brings up. Hazel brush is kind of everywhere in, in a lot of these places. So it's, it's one of those things where if you see a clump of hazel brush, it, you're not going to flush a grouse behind every one, but you want it to be a part of your grouse cover. At least my experience, I really want to see hazel brush in the covers that I'm hunting. And if I don't, I'm kind of looking at that cover thinking, ah, there could be, there could be more density in here. There could be more protection. Looks a little sparse. Not that you won't find grouse outside of the hazel brush, but I really like it as a component of the covers that I'm trying to hunt. Okay. Make sense? Yep. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you feel like you could go out in the woods and point it out at this point? I think so. I think after this this past weekend, um, yeah, I think I more readily identify it. I think that the aspen that I had hunted previously was, I think it was too dense. It was too young. Um, yep. I, it was that hazel brush almost, there just wasn't enough sunlight, I don't think, to grow underneath it. So I think I need to be looking for aspen that's a bit more mature, maybe not, you know, in the area that I was hunting, maybe not the diameter of my wrist, but the diameter of my calf. I don't know if I have to equate yeah. it to a similar terminology, it's just something that's a little bit more mature so that there is some dense underbrush to it. Because the, the stuff that I was finding, I think I alluded maybe another question is it was so thick, almost like a jail cell. You, you you could hardly walk through it, yeah. uh, let alone shoot. And I think I was hearing some birds in there, but again, between the swearing and tripping and falling and running into things, I don't know that I was <laughs> hearing them flush or not. It was it was frustrating. I think when I got out of that, found some either 
older aspen or stopped worrying about the aspen i think i found some real mature pine that had a lot of hazel underneath that's where i was finding some birds yeah that's a good question that is it's coming up at some point and i want to i want to we're going to talk about that okay i will say yeah many a grouse has escaped on the the opposite side of a of a hazel brush patch it's it's you get a dog on point and if you don't get the bird pinned between you and the dog um they can they can very easily escape on the other side of a of a patch of thick hazel brush and that's just you know that's just part of the game but especially right now so this is going to go this episode is going to go up later this week if folks go in the woods this weekend they're listening to this right away look for the hazel brush now because it's probably still going to have yellow leaves on it it's a kind of a tan khaki colored stem and you're going to see yellow leaves and it's it's usually it's about chest high on me um, or can be can be chest high you know above the waist kind of below the chest that's that's hazel hazel brush and you'll see it in aspen cuts you'll see it kind of all over the place but it's a it's easy to identify when it's got all those yellow leaves because it's pretty clear when those yellow leaves are are the understory but anyways the oh what were you gonna say there well i just and i noticed too when i was this past weekend when i would run into it or walk through it those yellow leaves are starting to fall off um, yes, you'll you'll be knocking them off. That's that's exactly right. They come off okay. pretty easy. All right. Yeah. Then I think I've I've got it identified now. Yep. I think you were I think you were in it based on what I'm based on what I'm hearing. Yeah. An app that I had was saying it was beaked beaked hazelnut. Yeah. That's the... that's there's there's beaked hazelnut. There's Ameri- there's American hazelnut, common hazel. I'm seeing all of those things listed here on this this first page of Google results. So I think you were definitely looking at what I'm referring to when I say hazel brush. Okay. And the other thing you asked was you were not seeing the catkins on what you thought was hazel brush. Does that show late in the season become a food source because of the late blooming? I don't know that. I feel like you can kind of see, see them about any time, but you know, sometimes when somebody asks a question like that, then you're kind of like, well, geez, I've never really thought about it. And, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know all that much about hazel brush other than I'm looking for it and I know how to identify it. Um, I think if you, I think if you looked, you should see the catkins right now, but I don't know if, if it's something that sprouts up later or why you weren't seeing them. I mean, they do, sometimes you see a, a hazel brush shrub with that's loaded with catkins and other times it's pretty sparse. So um, it's possible, it's possible that they just weren't very thick in that section you were looking at, but I think you've got it, got it identified. And that um, while we're on that note, I had talked in a previous episode with my buddy, Ted summer about using uh, an app to identify things in, we were out out on the prairie identifying plants and shrubs out there. I'm using it in the grouse woods. Now I've just been having, having a lot of fun with it. I mean, I know, I know some of the plants and shrubs, a lot of the plants and shrubs that I'm looking for, but that's a really cool resource to be able to use an app like that. And I th- personally, I think the more you connect those dots in your head and actually confirm what it is you're looking at, I think that will that can benefit you down the road in, in sort of putting the pieces together and understanding all these things that we're talking about and looking for. And I just learned over the weekend that I was using an app called seek to do it, which I liked and worked pretty well. But on 
a recent update to the iPhone, if you just take a picture of a plant and you and you're looking at your photos and you swipe up, Apple's got that stuff built in at this point where you can it will look up the plant. So you don't even have to download an app anymore. You can just start taking pictures of plants, and when you're at home, you can swipe up on those photos and look it up. So I have found that to be very helpful and uh, just just another tip to using using the tools that probably all of us are carrying with us out in the field. Were you using an app, Brady, or were you just did you take a picture and using the iPhone? Yeah, I was using uh, it was an app, or it is an app called Picture This. Um, okay, it's I should try the the one that you're using. Picture This. You've kind of got to look for it. It tries to charge you a fee every time you upload something, or monthly fee. If you just hit cancel, it does it for free. Um, but yeah, I should I should try a different app. But I've I've had some success with that one. Okay. Yeah. Seek is the one that I was using. And I had a listener reach out about a week ago and he told me that he used, I think it was iNaturalist. There's a bunch of them out there and they use, they do insects and animals. I will say Apple's got to work on their, their algorithm a little bit. Cause I tried, I tried it on a, a photo of a, one of the grouse that I had killed and it came up as great horned owl. So they got to work <laughs> on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Let me see. Where was that one? Okay, so I'm going to skip ahead here to this question that you asked. It's it's continuation of the hazel brush. Okay. This past weekend, I finally found birds. However, they were in tall white pine that had been logged many years ago. Some were left standing. There is a thick undergrowth, hazel, I think, that bordered a swamp. Is this a typical good spot or somewhat odd? I would say that is definitely sounds like good grouse cover to me how how good are you or how confident are you in your identification of white pine versus red pine i thought i knew it (laughs) now that you asked that (laughs) i'm gonna have to say not very um i you know the white pine to me has those soft needles yes or if you grabbed a handful of the needles it it really wouldn't do anything to your hand but i don't i don't think i could readily identify um red pine okay the, the only so reason it, I it definitely could have been red pine the re what i would say you've got you definitely have a grasp of the needles because they do have the they have that softer look to them and i've i've always felt that once i learned it identif- separating a white from a red is pretty easy because red pine very reliably has that reddish tint in the bark which i suspect is where the name came from but again i don't know the history there but so so you you look at the trunk and a red pine is going to have reddish tint in there the white pine is usually it's not white but it's more of a grayish uh cooler toned bark and does not have that warm reddish tone that red pine does and then the needles the needles are a little different as well the only reason i asked that is because i feel like i often find covers with red pine and very very thick hazelbrush understory I'm, that's just what comes to mind. Now I'm, I'm thinking of a spot that I hunted last year that was very much like that. And there, there probably is red pine and white pine can be mixed into the same cover. So it's, it's probably not unusual to find red and white pine together, but that's a great, great observation that you brought up and a really cool spot to highlight because that is, it's not an Aspen cover. Um, hopefully there's some Aspen nearby, but I have had very good luck hunting 
when I, when I see those mature pine stands with, you know, the canopy is pretty much solid. You know, you feel like you're, you're underneath a big green ceiling, but the, the stem density of those pines is not a lot, but there's hazel brush all over underneath. Absolutely. I would, I would key in on that for grouse. You, you can find woodcock in there too, especially if it was wet or raining, they know, they know how to get out of the rain and stay dry. But I mean, basically if I find anywhere that has a really thick hazel brush understory, I mean, I don't almost don't even care what the overstory is. I'm, I'm thinking I might find grouse in there, but that's a, that's a really cool grouse cover to identify. And, and the fact that you found birds in there is obviously good, good confirmation, but those are things where like sometimes this thing I say to myself is think outside the Aspen, you know, what am I, what am I missing by too intensely focusing on Aspen cuts or Aspen forests? And I think that's a great example of that. What, how big was that area? Well, I only hunted a small, uh, percentage of it. I mean, it was maybe a thousand acres in total. I mean, it was a, wow. it was a large area, you know, large enough that I was actually walking, I was walking the, the thicker stuff and I could hear, well, I occasionally see guys on four wheelers wearing blaze orange. They had to have been just, you know, working the trail and yeah. yeah. And just, you know, all for a ride and seeing if they could see anything. Uh, I didn't hear them shooting at all. Coincidentally. Um, well, they certainly didn't hear me shooting either, but <laughs> we, we were hunting <laughs> the, the same thing, but yeah, it was a big area. And I, I only, when I pulled in there, I basically went to a point where I could park and there was kind of a junction of a couple different trails. And I thought, well, I'll just make a big circle here around my truck and, and then and flushed maybe 10 birds. Eight of those were probably grouse and a couple yeah. of woodcock, like I said, on that edge. Um, cool. But as I was driving out of there, I, I drove out the same way I came in. I noted, or I noted that it was kind of the same cover all the way out. And it was just a logging road, but it probably took me five, 10 minutes to drive out of there. And it was yeah similar cover almost the whole way out. So yeah, there was plenty there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it, it was a fairly big area. Okay. That's something that, yeah, I would, I would absolutely key in on that and pay attention to that as good potential grouse cover. And I'm going to kind of segue with one of your other questions and sort of use that as a continuing example here. So the question was edges. Should I focus on walking the edge of a cover edge of what swamp to trees, oaks to Aspen, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, edges are something that come up all the time when it comes to upland bird hunting, specifically rough grouse hunting. And I think so much so that it sometimes you hear that and it's not, it's no longer helpful because you've heard it so many times and you're like, what is an edge? And I think it's, it's not something to be overcomplicated. It can be very simple, but here's how, here's how I might incorporate edges into that cover. So if I see, if I've got the, the mature overstory of white slash red pine and a thick hazel brush understory, let's just say I find myself in the middle of that. I was walking a trail and here I am in the middle of of white pine with a, with a thick hazel brush understory. So where edges comes into play there is, okay, what edge can I go find to incorporate more diversity into where my two feet are standing, if that makes sense. And I'll, and I'll continue. So if I'm, if you're in the middle of that cover, 
I'm, I'm probably going to take out my phone and look at the satellite imagery and I'm going to look for an obvious edge of where the white pine gives way to some kind of deciduous or other forest. And there's an edge that I just identified on satellite imagery. Now I'm going to, I'm going to point myself in that direction and I'm going to go find that edge. So I'm always trying to put myself on the edge of something. And the examples that you gave swamp to trees, oaks to Aspen, white pine to Aspen, white pine to oaks, red pine to oaks. Those are definitely the kinds of edges that I would try to put myself on. And the reason I'm doing that is my dog is going to key off me. My dog's going to cast to the left and cast to the right. I want to be on the edge because then I'm, I'm sort of centering the dog on that edge. And I also am hopefully might foot flush a bird or wild flush something on that edge because girls like those edges. So I think you're thinking about that in the right way. And edges is a, it's a broad term and it's meant to be that way because they really can be everything. What, what's going to end up happening is the more time you spend in the woods and the more time you spend doing this, you're going to get almost like a, like a sixth sense to identifying these edges. There's those obvious ones that we're talking about white pine to oaks or oaks to aspen oaks to aspen is a great edge a lot of times there's there's hazel brush in that seam between the oaks and the aspen and that makes for now you've got three different species of trees there you got acorns you got hazel catkins you got aspen leaves and aspen buds i mean what more does a grouse need right that's that's Mm -hmm. a great great sounding edge but don't get too focused well i don't want to say don't get too focused those are always good things you always want to be able to recognize those big macro edges in the forest then sort of the next level down are these micro edges and this is something there was some questions submitted on the and gender conversation about this everything can kind of be an edge and and your advantage there is just being able to identify okay if i'm walking and there's not much in front of me where's that next patch of hazel brush or where is that next deadfall so this is where the edge conversation kind of gets mixed with objectives and i'm always looking for some kind of objective or edge in the forest whether it's the edge of an it's a little opening in the canopy so if if there's a if there's an opening in the canopy sunlight comes in there and grows hazel brush and other vegetation that whole little opening is going to be a quote edge right Mm -hmm. and so those are those are the little things you're looking for in the forest as you're walking as you're hunting you want to learn how to identify those and you might be working in general one of those macro edges the aspen forest to the oak forest or the aspen forest to the pine forest but then you want to look for you want to look for those little edges and those little objectives while you're on your hike at least that's that's kind of how i do it okay that makes sense creeks drainages riparian corridors even if they're dried up you know if there's a little drainage that is doesn't have water in it but that drainage will sustain and grow vegetation year after year based on water draining through there that kind of creates like a perennial edge in the forest it's always going to be there they can cut around it or near it if they leave that drainage that drainage is there, that's going to create an edge too. So look for, so you're kind of paying attention to topography too. If you see any kind of a, a dip or a swale or anything like that, those will also create edges in the forest. Okay. 
Yeah, almost just a, not necessarily an edge, but almost a break in the monotony of yes. the forest. That's, just that's changes, exactly right. Yeah, changes in, just changes in the forest, essentially. And the underlying principle there is diversity. The ruffed grouse is, to find ruffed grouse, you want to find as much diversity and mixed habitat as you possibly can. And so every one of those little breaks in the forest, that's a great way to explain it. It's kind of, I was, I was beating around the bush there. Every one of those is adding diversity and complexity to that piece of habitat. And it, the more that you see, the more I'm thinking, yeah, this looks good. I'm, I, my confidence levels rising. I think we're going to find grouse here versus if the whole landscape in front of you looks exactly the same, I'm not as confident there. Now it might be, you can get into situations where maybe the whole thing in front of me is perfect Aspen with perfect hazelbrush understory. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but you still, I still put a premium on diversity and variance in the cover as opposed to looking at, you know, a wall of entirely the same thing. If I'm in a, if I'm in an Aspen cut that has that, those Aspen trees and that hazel brush, I want to know where the lone spruce tree is. And I'm going to walk over, walk over to that. Like Mm -hmm. anything, anything, anything different should, should sort of catch your attention and at least grab your observation for, for a moment, you know, go check it out. Okay. Okay. Should I walk the trails or bust through brush? So this is another good kind of continuation of this question because as i've said many times before a trail is also an edge trail is an edge in the forest sunlight is getting through the canopy there you're going to have raspberry patches blackberry patches along those trail edges you're going to have insects you're going to have food a trail is an edge i am not opposed to walking trails especially this time of year i think the grouse have been using those trails pretty much all summer to eat insects and eat clover and get and get grit. Grouse are going to pick rocks and eat little pebbles to collect in their gizzard and grind up the stuff that they're eating. A lot of times they find that on trails. When it comes to early season, I will use trails to my advantage. And you know, it's it's not as fun to bust brush in the early season. It can be thick, buggy, hot. Um, sometimes it can feel kind of hopeless. Almost you might be, you might be busting brush and you're going to, you might be flushing grouse, but you don't see them or you don't hear them. You never have a shot. I'm out there to hunt and I'm out there to hopefully get a shot opportunity. And sometimes I will walk a trail in, in an attempt to increase my opportunity to get a shot. Because if you walk enough trails, you're eventually probably going to get a look at a bird that flushes down a trail or across a trail. Or if you're really lucky, the dog points one and the thing has escape cover on the opposite side of the trail and, and it flushes. I mean, trails, trails can have complications and challenges. They can be, they tend to have more traffic. You could run into ATVs or other hunters, but grouse use trails and I do not hesitate to use them if I'm trying to get somewhere or if I'm just looking for an easier road to walk where I can stay more ready, more prepared to take a shot. Does that okay. make sense? Yep. And it's not that the grouse aren't in the cover and you couldn't find more by busting brush, but personally I'm I'm weighing certain things on like my enjoyment level in the woods and what I want to do. And I, you know, if I'm walking a trail, I don't think I'm not going to see a bird. So I'm, I'm walking a trail because I, I think I've got a good chance 
of seeing a grouse there. And sometimes I'll just do that because it's more enjoyable <laughs> to walk yeah. a trail than, than bus brush and be swatting mosquitoes and getting slapped in the face when I can't see where I'm even going. Right. Yep. Now there's nothing I love more than when the leaves and the cover come down in the second half of October and into November. And, and after you've spent, you know, a month hunting the early season grouse woods, by the time that stuff comes down and the hazel brush drops its leaves and, and all the, all the grasses and stuff are gone. I mean, there is no more freeing feeling in the world than it just feels like you can walk anywhere in the woods. And, and like, you've got, just got so many more options available to you at that point to get off the trail, go deep, identify a swamp edge, identify some edge that isn't a trail and go investigate those. Like the later into the season you get, the more I do that, the more you'll find me off the trail. And that that's twofold because, you know, by that time, the trails have probably been hit pretty hard. The grouse have been educated along those trails. So it logically, it makes sense to go a little bit deeper, go find other stuff. So I just, I kind of, I take advantage of that as it becomes available to me. I don't force myself to do that in the early season if I don't want to. And when it's, when it's easier and more open in the woods, then I'm going off trail and trying to, you know, trying to see what back backwoods place I can get to at that point. Okay. That's a, I don't know why, but a more nuanced answer than what I thought <laughs> it was going to be. I mean, there, yeah, I thought it would be kind of a, either or but it, it makes sense when you explain it yeah well and it, i mean i think you know you'll hear people say you know get off the trail everybody hunts the trails get off the trails i i don't think that's bad advice but i also think that i mean a lot of grouse are killed on and around trails every year so if it's if you go out there and you don't really have the experience to back it up and you say well I've got to get off the trail because that's what someone told me. You might go out and just have a terrible experience when you really didn't need to, right? So it's it it should be it should be nuanced, and that's really what I'm what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. All right. Let's see. So we talked trails. We talked edges. Okay. How far long do you work a cover before you move on if it's unproductive? Does that change if you've hunted it? earlier in the year and found birds what about if you've had excess there in the previous year okay this is something that i am i'm sort of questioning i'm wondering if i should i want to understand this a little bit better and i'm hopefully going to be doing an interview in the next week or so with somebody that i think has uh, a bit like stronger thought and perspective on this topic than i do i think the way that it plays out for me in the woods is that when I go to hunt somewhere, I usually have a route or uh, an objective in mind. So we've kind of talked about this throughout the conversation. I've identified something via e-scouting that I want to see, whether it's an aspen cut or a swamp edge or something. I'm going to go look at that cover. I'm going to go look at that objective and I'm going to hike around this and I'm going to eventually get back to my truck and I will have seen what I've seen. I don't typically go into a place and if a certain amount of time goes by, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and I haven't flushed a bird, I am not likely to say, well, I have to leave now because I haven't flushed a bird. There are other people that I think handle that a little bit differently and do think about it that way. I'm just 
not one of them. And it's something that I would like to learn more about, you know, am I shooting myself in the foot by not paying closer attention to that and, and maybe pulling up before I finish my objective or something. It, it would be really hard for me if I parked the truck, got out, collared up the dogs, loaded up the vest, I'm on the ground, I've got limited time in the day. It's hard for me to say, oh, I'm going to leave here and go somewhere else without seeing what I came here to see. And, and part of that is just like, you know, I'm an optimist, glass half full, uh, what's around the next corner, I might as well go for a walk, I might learn something, I, I can come up with all kinds of justifications on why I should keep walking, and just finish it out. Now, if I'm not seeing any birds, I'm probably not going to detour and go further into the cover, right? I'm, I've mm-hmm. got my set, I've got my set loop that I'm probably assuming about an hour, like about if I put my dog on the ground and I get loaded up and ready to go. I'm assuming I'm going to go somewhere for an hour and the birds are probably going to sort of play a role as far as like, do I stay out there and keep poking around or am I looping back to the truck? So more birds, I'm going to do a little bit more combing around, thorough investigating. If there's less birds, I'm just kind of completing my loop and coming back to the truck. Now, maybe that's a bad way to think about, you know, maybe I should, if I'm not finding birds where I think I should, should I be, should I be looking for them elsewhere nearby? Should I be more thorough? You know, those are the kinds of questions that I'm like, wonder, should I ask myself? Right. Yeah. And it sounds like it's more of a, maybe that's your personality, not necessarily you as a hunter, but just your personality in general. You said that you're more of a glass half full kind of guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're out fishing, do you do the same thing? Do you pull up to a spot? Your walleye fishing, you you jig for ten minutes. Nope, they're not here, and you move on. Or <laughs> are you uh, like my dad, who gives it thirty minutes, an hour, an hour and a half? <laughs> well, they were here last year, this time of year, so I'm gonna find them this time. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I I think that's a good question. I don't I don't I don't fish all that much anymore. But it's interesting when you frame it that way. Because when you're when you're fishing, I I think when you're fishing, I think it makes more sense because you're like if I'm parked on a spot jigging for walleyes and nothing bites in 15 minutes, probably going to pull off stakes and go somewhere else. But if I'm walking through a grouse cover, I can probably look down at my map and find an objective to say I'm going to go check that. So it's not like we're stationary. When we're hunting, we are moving. We're always we're always moving. We're not in. We're not in one spot, right? Mm-hmm. So it's e- easier to convince myself to to keep walking. I think in that with in that regard. Okay, but you know, I just like a lot of that's a it's a really good question, and and again, it's something that I'm I'm reaching a point where I'm like, what am I missing here? What do I need to question about about my method or approach or thought process? You know, these birds they move around the forest, but it's not like they pick up one morning and fly 10 miles away. So if I'm in the woods, I have a high level of confidence that I'm in grouse cover and I could flush a bird, but are there other things I should be paying attention to that, you know, if the, if my flush count is, if my flush rate is not at a certain level, should I be, should I be looking for a different kind of cover and say, okay, they're not in this stuff today. I got to switch it up with the next spot and go somewhere else. I think that's, that's sort of built in. If I go into a spot and have a bad walk, 
whether that was an hour or 45 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever it was, I'm probably going to, my next spot, I'm probably going to look for something a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. And then your follow, your follow-ups there were, does that change if you've hunted it earlier in the year and found birds? What about if you've had success there in the previous year? Any kind of, any kind of previous success, whether it was that year or a previous year, that is going to play a role in your confidence in that spot. And that's one of those, you hear this a lot when it comes to not just upland bird hunting, but hunting in general, going back to the same spot every year, thinking you're going to find the same thing is a slippery slope, a little bit dangerous, but grouse covers can stay reliably good for, for an extended period of time. So if I've had a lot of success in a place in the past, I'm not going to question that much. I'm going to go hunt that spot and see what I see. And if, if I don't find the birds and it happens all the time, you know, you go and have, you know, a 20, 25 bird flush count one year, go back the next year and maybe you flush five. I mean, that does happen. And more often than not, I'm kind of sitting there and scratching my head like, well, this didn't change all that much. What's, what is the difference here? And I think that's kind of a, that's part of grouse hunting that I don't know that, that you, you'll always be able to answer that, but I wonder if there's sort of a higher level of understanding there that I haven't reached yet or uh, could learn more about. So something I've been thinking about for sure. Mm -hmm. Anything else on spots, moving, previous success, that kind of thing? No, I think that, no, I think that a good job of summing that up or uh, some clarity there. Yeah. Okay. Then you mentioned this earlier, this was related to that pine cover, but Aspen, the size of a wrist, I found that where I hunt, it is almost impossible to walk through that. Yeah, aspen cuts can be really hard to walk through. Well, anything really high stem density can be. There are times when I'm pushing through that stuff and just going through it, but I'm probably going back to that conversation about edges or um, objectives. I'm I'm picking my way through the cover. I'm, I'm looking for the easiest route, but... I just have some level of acceptance that I'm going to be in thick cover looking for grouse and woodcock, but I might float my way out to the edge of that aspen. A lot of times there could be a, you know, deer use edges too in the same way. And if you find the edge of that aspen cut and what it, what it butts up with, you're probably going to find a deer trail. I, I mean, I probably spend a lot of time on deer trails. Um, you'll see game trails in the forest and the woods. You're, you're walking through that, like, be smart about it. You don't need to, sometimes you're going to have to go through thick stuff and you're, you're going to get hung up and you're going to trip and you're going to fall. That's part of grouse hunting, but don't let that stop you from looking for the path of least resistance or an easier route through the cover. Cause you're lucky. I'm lucky. We've got, we got bird dogs. They're going to be covering ground. They're going to be looking for birds as well. So you don't have to kick every bush and, and hit every deadfall, even though I'm looking for that stuff anyways. Does that that kind of answer your question? Yeah, and that was one thing I think I, you know, I wrote these questions or came up with these over the course of a week or 10 days or so on. I think that was one thing that I realized is why I'm, you know, I think I ask it in a different, one of the other questions is I can slow down and I found myself kind of moving ahead to a point where I knew I could get a shot off and like let the dog do the work versus me moving at a steady pace through cover that I, even if a bird were to flush, I don't have much of a chance of even getting the gun up to my shoulder, let alone getting a shot off. 
So I found yep. myself doing that as more of like a still hunting approach where I would take, you know, five, 10 steps, stop, let the dog work, especially in stuff that I identified as good cover. And then mm-hmm. another handful of steps, stop maximizing the, the work that the dog was doing. Cause she, especially as a young dog, she's paying a lot more attention to me than what I, I would like. Um, yep. And just kind of constantly checking in to make sure that I'm still there. I haven't left her in the woods or something like that. Um, yeah. And I think that'll that'll get better with her maturity. But just let her let her work out some of this on her own. Let her essentially let her do what she's there to do. Yep. Good. Good observation. Good question. And yeah, on the dog thing, in theory, her confidence level should go up the more you do this. This is a this is a big year for for the two of you working as a team. It's good to have the dog keying in on you. You want to be hunting together. You want that cooperation. You know, she wants to know where you are. That's a good thing. And, and as as her confidence grows, she'll probably focus more on her job while still staying in connection with you. You know, that's that's what a that's what a good dog does. I don't think there's anything wrong with the approach that that you're doing, and that's a, that's a good thing. You that's kind of like the next level. Okay, I've identified good habitat. Here I am hunting it. Now I want to. I want to get a shot off. So thinking about where I'm, where you're positioning yourself in that cover and getting, getting to a, an opening where you've got a shot and stopping, never a bad idea. A lot of times that can unsettle a grouse that you might've otherwise walked right by. And you could actually, you could actually get a wild flush there. If you stop in the right spot, that's very, very common. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a good way to do it. And the only thing I would say is your dog is, the dogs take a lot of cues off of your body language. And so if you stand and stop and you're, you're doing this at the right, this is the first, first year for your dog. So she's learning this. If you stand and stop, and then all of a sudden your dog stops and starts looking at you like, Hey, what are we doing? You'd want to keep moving there, right. To keep, to keep the dog hunting. But if you Mm -hmm. stop and the dog continues to thoroughly look around and search cover, I think that's, I think that's great. I think a lot of times I per, I probably have a tendency to, because I have that wanderlust and I want to keep going, I probably have a tendency to push my dogs through cover. And this is something I've been thinking about more recently. How do I slow down, take a little bit of extra time, give my dog more of a chance to cover more ground and find those grouse that, are, that we would otherwise push by? It does not take much. I mean, a grouse doesn't need to be more than 10, 15, 20 yards away. You take the wrong angle. My dog is casting to my left and that grouse is 10 yards to my right. We're gone. And that grouse never moved, never made a sound, never made a peep. I think in a lot of ways, slower is, can be better, Mm -hmm. but I, I do know people that, that hunt faster and just want to cover more ground and let their dogs, let their dogs run fast, run big and cover ground. I mean, there's definitely more than, more than one way to do it. So I think that's going to depend a little bit on your dog and sort of the approach that you want to take, but what you're describing, I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with, with that okay. approach. Okay. Okay. So we're, we got a few more left here. What's so what speed do I walk with the dog? Similar to a fast still hunt for deer, few steps, stop, keep a steady pace. So yeah, that's, that's one we just covered. Mm-hmm. And again, that 
probably with time and experience, it'll depend. Like if you know you're in, if you're in cover that you're identifying as, ah, this doesn't look that good. Maybe the pace quickens a little bit. You know, it's more open. The dog can cover ground easily and you don't need to slow down in there. But if I get to a really good spot, something that I'm identifying as premium habitat, high quality cover, that's a spot where I'm probably slowing down. Let's give the dog a little bit of extra time to, to check a few more objectives and cover this area a little bit more thoroughly. That's a, it's an organic thing that will kind of happen with time, but it's good to be thinking about that speed of speed of hunt at this point. So great observation. More of a dog training question, but when my dog is on point, should I woe her or let her learn on her own that she can't crowd the birds or they'll flush? And then there's a follow-up there we'll get to. All right, so I'm not a dog trainer. You know that, Brady. The listeners know that. If I, if my dog was on point, and especially if it's first season with the dog, unless you know that there's, like if you could see the grouse and you knew there was a grouse there and you had an opportunity to woe your dog and you've done woe work with your dog and you you feel like you can reasonably ask that of the dog, you might woe the dog, but if that's not the case, which is more often than not, you're not going to know there's a grouse there, right? We're not going to see the bird unless, unless we do stay quiet. Just don't, don't say anything. Let the dog move in, flush the bird, bump the bird with a young dog. You want that dog to learn on its own, how close it can get. That's what people mean when they say, let the birds teach the dog, let the dog make the mistakes. Do not interfere unless you know and have control over all of the all of the variables and and obviously you don't have control over the wild grouse but what i was getting at there is like if you see a grouse and you wanted to woe your dog you could do that but if it's if it's not you don't want to you don't want to interfere because she might be pointing a squirrel or a rabbit or um, something you have no idea what the dog is pointing you'd rather let the dog figure it out and learn for itself than interfere with that process if you don't know exactly what's going on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of torn. I, I mean, we we're in an area where we had already flushed some birds. Um, she'd already pointed some birds and she was real close to me and all of a sudden just locked up and then we wanted to creep forward. And I was kind of torn. I was, okay. Do I just let her, let her learn this or yeah. no, you know, I, I just, I just didn't know. Cause again, I'm, circle back to what I said early on is I don't care if I shoot a bird at all this year. I just want to get her the work and see her progress. That's, that's more enjoyable for me, especially this season. Um, so yeah, I just don't want to, I want to let that happen. But at the same time, if I can, you know, use a woe to, to aid in that happening or progressing, but that, that's a good answer. It, I like what you said there. If I know that there's a yeah. bird there, because um, there's also the possibility that bird has run 40 yards ahead. She needs yep. to move ahead to reacquire or, you know, whatever's going on in their brain with that scent cone, um, yep. letting her work that out. So I think, I think erring on the side of let her figure it out, unless for some reason I know there's a bird right there is, is a good answer. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, I think that aligns with, with like the goals that you have and the expectations that you're telling me, you know, you're, 
you want this for the dog and you want her to have the bird contacts and for her to get the most out of this season, you're not concerned with putting that bird in the bag. I mean, the only thing that could happen, if you see a grouse and you woe your dog and she doesn't smell the grouse, you walk up, flush the bird, kill it. It's not that that isn't fun for the dog. She probably gets feathers in her mouth and there's, there's really nothing wrong with that. But based on your goals and what you're trying to do, I would almost argue you've got more benefit in just letting her letting her move up and bump flush or maybe point that bird, right? Like there's more to, there's more potential benefit to just letting the dog figure it out, figure it out and, and getting that bird contact based on the goals and the expectations that you have for that season. And then when it comes to, again, wooing the dog, when you're not sure what's going on, there's just too many unknowns, especially with a young dog that, if you start interfering there, if maybe she's got a, maybe she's got some really, really faint scent that is, you know, the bird is not there. If you start woeing the dog on that kind of stuff, then maybe all of a sudden the dog starts, starts pointing that scent and she's, she's really far off the bird and doesn't figure out how to, how to get close, but not too close. So I, I think it's, I think we've kind of, kind of gone around it here. better off. This is just my opinion. I would personally let the dog learn on its own, even if that results in a bumped bird and me watching it fly away. If it's truly about the dog, that's what I would do. Okay. Good question. All right. And this is, this is the last one. So I've noticed the dog seems to get nervous when she can't see me. Is there something I should be doing to convince her to hunt out of my sight? Or is this a trait that she'll learn to grow up? So we, we kind of talked about this. Her confidence should go up as she can. you guys continue to hunt together. You should see it go up this season. You'll see it go up next spring, next fall. If the dog is looking for you, you don't want a nervous dog. You don't want a scared dog. A nervous, scared dog is not going to be hunting. But you don't, need to, you don't need to coddle the dog. If the dog wants to know where, where you are, let her know, let her know where you are out in the grouse woods. And I do that by, you know, if, if I feel like my, and you'll get a, you'll get a sense for this. Sometimes you can just tell, like I'm running bells and like the dog will, the dog will be running and I'll hear the bell stop. And maybe, you know, the things that are, that are going on in my subconscious mind, the dog's been on a cast for a minute or two. And then all of a sudden the bell's getting closer and closer and closer and it stops. If I hear that bell stop, I'm going to say, yep, Rose, or yep, Hartley, say my dog's name. And more often than not, that bell will start start going again. They were looking for me. And so I'm just, I'm just giving them a little, yep, Rose. Field trial guys have a rep, guys and girls, I should say, have a reputation for like some of them will sing to their dogs. They're always making noise. So their dogs kind of always know where they are. I don't, I don't really do that because I've got a GPS on my dog and I don't want my dog like always paying attention to me or my voice and potentially tuning me out. Um, I want my dog hunting, looking for birds as much as possible and what, whatever minimum amount of communication I need to do with them just to make sure that we stick together and are hunting together. I do that, you know, so I'll call out to him. I'll, I'll do that. Yep. Rose, I'm over here. That kind of thing. Okay. But other than that, I'm trying to stay as quiet as possible. I'm listening to the bell. I'm looking in the woods. I'm, I'm making my observations and I'm just making sure that, that the dog is staying in contact with me, but at a minimum level, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, the last thing I want to do is 
be out constantly telling my dog, find the birds, hunt them up. No, just right. go do it. Go do what you're supposed to do. And I'll be here too. So yeah, I don't, I prefer to just listen to the, listen to nature and not be shouting at and talking to my dog the entire time. Yep. And it, and if the dog, you know, if the dog is like you, you're observing, if, if, if the dog is looking for you, what I wouldn't do is say, here or get the dog to come all the way into you or something you just want to you just want to make contact with the dog but just kind of proceed business as usual so that's it's kind of that casual yep right over here and and i'm i'm gonna keep walking and and that i think will help encourage the dog to just oh okay we don't want to stop our hunt to you know touch base or reconnect or anything like that it's just i'm here we're moving through the woods together we want to make sure the dog is with us and not searching for us because if they're looking for you, they're not looking for birds, right? Yep. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got to that because that's I don't want to necessarily do a recall and have her yeah. come all the way back, but just I let would, her know I would that not do that. Yep. Okay. Good to the, know. The danger, the danger there is is what, and danger is kind of a strong term, but people will sometimes talk about a yo-yo dog, a dog that runs out into the cover and then comes all the way back into your feet. That's not what you want because that's the dog is wasting its energy by coming all the way back into your feet. All we're looking for is this like symbiotic relationship where the dog is hunting and looking for birds and has a comfort level of where we are and is maintaining a connection with us to to allow the dog to stay confident and continue its hunt for birds. So, yeah, that's that's how I would approach it. Great. That's the list, Brady. That was a huge help. Hopefully, hopefully I'm picturing listeners not rolling their eyes going, how did this guy not know that? Uh, hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully people are nodding and going, yeah, I was wondering that same thing. You know, maybe there's some value here. I, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I definitely think so. I get, I get enough, uh, I talk to enough people and get enough, get enough questions from folks that I think that that will be the case. And yeah, that was fun. This, I got to say, man, this was, if my guests did all the work like this all the time, boy, I would, I could be out of a job in a hurry, Brady. Thank you for sending in all those questions. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for allowing me to come on and, and listen and hit you with some follow-up questions. This is, this is great. It's a rare opportunity to be able to pick someone's brain. I, I know you, you said earlier, you didn't see yourself as an expert. Um, you're, you're certainly, you have ac- access to more experts and certainly more of an expert than I and a lot of people are. So it, it was a great opportunity to be able to, to do this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm certainly glad you felt that way. And this was, it was fun for me because I, I will say like, you know, I have been doing this for a long time. So there are things that I would, might have a tendency to sort of glaze over or brush over in my mind, like, oh, I know that, you know, I, I don't need to get into that. But that's obviously not the case for everybody. And I hear from people all the time that are, you know, they've got the first bird dog or they're, they're, it's their first, second, third, fourth, fifth year grouse hunting. And so it's helpful for me, you know, if you can't explain something, if you can't like sort of teach it to somebody else, like how, how well do you really understand it, right? That old thing. So, so for me to sort of talk through some of this stuff and explain the way that I think about things and in an attempt to help you and educate you and others um, is also helpful to me. So I really, really enjoyed it as well. Good. What are your plans for the rest of the way? Getting the dog on, getting the dog on grouse. That's the number one goal. 
get the dog on grouse. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then kind of when deer season is open here, I've kind of got a harebrained idea that I'm going to drive out to South Dakota and see if I can find a sharp tail or two. And, oh, um, sweet. Maybe give that a shot and maybe hit some pheasants on the way back. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. But for the next, what do we got, month or so, we'll be hitting yeah. the, the grouse woods hard or as hard as I'm able to from uh, from the Twin Cities driving north every weekend. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you keep doing that. And, man, we are, you know this, but we are we are on the verge of the best time of year. And things are shaping up to be, I, you know, I'm, I continue to hear positive reports. I've seen, I, I saw some good, good bird numbers over the weekend. It's still a little bit hard to tell. My sample size is kind of small. But it's been uh, and and with the the stuff we talked about with the cover being thick, we are we're on the verge of the best hunting of the year. And yeah, enjoy this first season with your dog. Again, I I can't tell you enough. Like you, your attitude and expectations of the season, I think, are really really going to set you up for success this year. You you pretty much you know you're going to have a good season. Um, so yeah, keep doing it. Let me know if you got any more questions. And again. Thank you for sending all these my way. I think I think listeners will pick some stuff up in this episode. And as one final reminder to listeners, please share your thoughts, feedback, anything I I glazed over, or or if you think about something differently or have different thoughts, share those with me and Brady. And appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on the show today, man. Thank you, Nick. All right, have a great day. You as well. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.